So I took a break yesterday from my prep and went to potter around doing a few bits and pieces at Amy's house. And she said, uh, what are you doing when you go home? So I said, I've got to finish my prep for ministry. Oh, what's your ministry? Uh, Jonah. And she sprang into song. <laughs> Little kind of ivy on the hip, imagine, the, imagine it. Come listen to my tale of Jonah and the whale. I won't sing it to you. Come listen to my tale of Jonah and the whale, way down in the middle of the ocean. Now, how did he get there? What did he wear? Way down in the middle of the ocean. A preaching he should be at Nineveh, you see. To disobey was a very foolish notion. But God forgave his sin. Salvation entered in, way down in the middle of the ocean. Enough said? <laughs> I think not. <laughs> Brace yourselves for a brilliant study. And I'm not talking about my talk now. I'm talking about what comes over in the next few weeks. Because there is so much in the, the short book of Jonah. And um, we may even only scratch the surface in the time that we've got. As a little aside, it's brilliant to teach our little ones these Bible stories, even though they are so presented so simplistically. So uh, never shy away from singing Bible stories to little people. There's a lesson number one. Uh, I've got some homework for you. Uh, two items to the homework. Uh, in case you forget, you might want to write it down. Uh, number one is to invest seven minutes in reading the story of Jonah um, uninterrupted. That's how long it will take you. And you get a much better sense of reading the book in, uh, in one sitting. That's homework number one. My recommendation is don't procrastinate, do it today. Find, find seven minutes today in which to do it. Second homework point is Google, and I quote, the story of Jonah uh, slash maps. And um, you'll be startled at what it, what it, it, the image that comes straight into your face when you Google that. And I'll touch on it in a second, but it really is quite, whoa. You, you get um, an image that um, really tells a story on its own, but we'll come back to that. So I mentioned it's a brilliant study. Um, and I've kind of noted down four or five points that emerge from um, this multifaceted, fascinating tale um, of God's dealings in many different ways. The first is with a wayward prophet, with a huge chip on his shoulder, with an anger problem, and it demonstrates from God his patience and his kindness and his resolve never to give up on his wayward servant. Um, and it's a, an amazing object lesson for us. The second one is it shows God's dealings with a, what seems to be a, a group of random pagan sailors who from the position of despair, but showing reverence and integrity, they call on God for mercy and they receive it miraculously. That's number two. Number three, God's dealings with a wicked pagan king and his 120,000 subjects who, when confronted with their wickedness, turn to God and receive his great mercy. In the process, in dealing with these three 
groups of people, um, we observe God's power over creation and created things. And also his resolve to fulfill his sovereign purposes, which are unstoppable. Um, and at the center of the story, what we learn about the character of God is that his mercy trumps his judgment. It's kind of a bold statement to say. Um, repentance has importance. But in God's aspiration, I think the story that we'll study demonstrates that he wants to show mercy first. Um, amazing stuff. A little bit about the book, uh, just to give us some context. In our, I'm going to call them Western Bibles, um, there are 17 um, books of prophecy in the Old Testament, as opposed to historical accounts. Obviously more than 17 prophets, but um, 17 books of prophecy. And they're written by 16 prophets, or they, if not written by the prophet, they're the story of the prophet. And we have four major prophets, that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And Jeremiah is attributed to uh, two books, Lamentations and his own book. And we call them major uh, prophets, it's a curious expression, um, because the other 12 are called minor prophets. And they are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, those who have uh, rehearsed the books of the Bible, well, that will be dripping off your tongue. <coughs> Minor prophets has a really dreadful connotation of some kind of inferiority. Um, I want to point out that that's not the case. That the messages from these prophets are not minor messages that should be seen somehow as less significant than the messages that we get from the major prophets. I think it's, a, I could be wrong, but I think it's as simple as they're called minor prophets because the volume of the work is, in contrast to the other four, minor, smaller. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, so not in our modern Bibles, but in the Hebrew Bible, they actually appear as one book. And the title of the book in Hebrew, whatever that word is, is the Twelve. Um, straight away you, you start thinking, don't you, mm, 12, that's a significant number. We've got 12 tribes, we've got 12 apostles, and now we're discovering we have 12 minor prophets. And if we were into numerology in the Bible, we'd discover multiples of 12, and we kind of start asking ourselves the question, it's got to be significant, but what is its significance? And there's um, cleverer people than me that have probably written books on that subject but I just like to consider it as um, maybe not a perfect number, but a whole number. So, you know, if the Lord was with his disciples and there was only 11 showed up, it wasn't complete. There was one missing. And um, let, let's just have that thought in our minds when we're considering the book of Jonah as um, one of 12 in the 12 minor prophets. Uh, he doesn't get a good press when you read the book. Um, and we might think, well, maybe he's the most minor of the minor prophets. And that might well be true. But I'd just like us to consider that without Jonah, without the account of Jonah, the, the minor prophets 
contribution to God's word would be incomplete. It wouldn't be a whole number. Um, last point about the book really is it, it does stand out as different from most of the other prophetic Old Testament books because it's less about what Jonah preached. It is about that, but that's not its major. In fact, um, I, I read a commentary that said in Hebrew, um, Jonah's sermon to Nineveh is only five words. So, um, it, you know, it doesn't major on that. But what it does major on is an episode in Jonah's life, which is um, a real object lesson for us. And as I've said earlier, it's about God's dealings with him and the way God fulfills his sovereign purposes through his servant Jonah, however unworthy he seemed to be. So um, in the book, it's, it's um, I'm not going to say it's not about Jonah, because it is. Um, it's a little bit about his, his message, um, but it's really about the... Um, the object lesson we can get from his life and his calling and how he responded to that calling. What about Jonah the man? That was the book. What about the man? So don't know very much about him because it's mainly what we draw, the knowledge that we draw about him is mainly from the book of Jonah, just those four chapters. <coughs> um, scholars believe he lived around 800 BC. <coughs> And in those minor prophets, Amos was um, a contemporary, so he lived around the same time as Amos. <laughs> and um, also, one comment I heard was, he probably was a contemporary of Elisha. Uh, so Elisha succeeded Elijah. So you kind of get a sense of, you know, there's a few prophets around at that time, and Jonah is one of them. We can be assured, despite how the the book is portrayed, we can be assured it's not a, um, a tale, a parable, a, um, a mythical story. It a, a, describes a real person and an episode in his real life. How do we know that? Well, there is one other Old Testament reference to Jonah, which we'll read. It's in Second Kings. Come back to that later. And of course, the Lord Jesus uh, referred to Jonah himself. So, a very simple rule, if, if the Lord was referring to this man as a real person, which he was, then of course that's enough evidence for us to know that Jonah was a real person. Um, the insights, as I said, the insights into Jonah's character are limited to the four chapters, but we are left with the impression of a, I'm going to say, a little angry man who... Um, had a, a real chip on his shoulder and um, th there's not very much impressive about him that's going to say that um, and you might think well you know thank goodness and maybe it's a lesson of how I shouldn't be but I'd like to encourage us to ask a question and, and it challenges my heart and that is as we discover the character of this man Jonah is there a Jonah in me and I think my conclusion about myself is sadly there is and the lessons are there for me too 
learn from God's dealings with Jonah and keep the Jonah within me in his place. Let's take our first reading. It's from 2 Kings chapter 14. This is where <coughs> the other reference that we encounter about this man Jonah. It says in verse 23 of 2 Kings 14, In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, became king, uh, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Labo Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. We're given a hint that Jonah in the part of his life that we don't read about in the book, is a credible prophet from God. He was a vehicle through which God spoke his word to a wicked king, um, Jeroboam. And it seems that the prophecy at that time that Jonah gave the king, it's a message from God, and it was to do with the restoration uh, of the borders in northern Israel. And you kind of get the impression that here was a very patriotic Israelite and has a passion about the borders. You know, this is God's people's territory and we have a border and the people north of that, which incidentally is Nineveh, uh, Assyria, um, they are the enemy. So we have this sense that Jonah was somehow instrumental in the king and his armies at that time restoring lost land and reinstating um, a border. And that's maybe something that Jonah was pretty proud of, his prophecy came true. But the, um, the researchers also tell us that Amos, who served uh, under the same king, Jeroboam II, he prophesied after Jonah that that gain in in uh, territory would be lost. And it's, it would be lost because of uh, the king's wickedness. And that also came true. And you've got this right at the start of our, our thinking about Jonah, is here he is delivering God's message to the king faithfully, it gets fulfilled, someone else comes along and reverses it. How does that make me, Jonah, feel? Well, actually, pretty annoyed. <laughs> You know, why did you make me prophesy those things if it was your intention at the beginning to undo them anyway? I've got no credibility and we have a guy who's got a severely damaged ego. He's a, an angry prophet. I would just encourage us to have a reflection on when things don't go our way. Is there a bit of a Jonah in us which gets angry with God and says, why would you do that? And, um, you know, it, it, you get the sense it destroyed Jonah's usefulness for a time to God. It's a lesson learned from uh, that simple other reference we have about this man.
But let's go to the book. Um, we're only going to read three verses, but they're loaded with, with stuff. And we'll kind of take those. So it's the first three verses of Jonah chapter 1. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fur, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So, first of all, a little bit about Nineveh. Nineveh is a major element of this story. I, I mentioned, you, you might think the story's not about Jonah. It is about Jonah, but it's probably more about Nineveh uh, when you read the story as a whole. It was the capital city of Assyria at the time on the river Tigris. That's about um, 550 miles north of Jerusalem. Curiously, that's currently a place called Mosul. And we know Mosul from the news. It's in Iraq. And it's 50 miles south of Baghdad. No longer the, the capital of that area. But um, nevertheless, still a modern and significant city. Um, Assyria, of which it was the capital, was a long-term uh, enemy of Israel. And actually, we get the first mention of Nineveh in what's called the Table of the Nations. And that's in Genesis chapter 10. And it's a record of the sons of, of uh, Noah's sons. And if we go to Genesis chapter 10, we'll find that um, Nineveh was the, a descent, um, Nineveh came from uh, a guy called, uh, what's his name in my notes? Um, Nimrod is the name I'm looking for. Came from a guy called Nimrod, who was um, in the line of Ham, one of Noah's three sons. And the line of Ham was not the line of Israel. Shem uh, was the ancestor between Noah and Jacob or Israel. So um, the first reference we learn about Nineveh is that it's not in the line of Israel. And um, the guy who, uh, who built the city was really renowned for his hunting skills and the fact that he was a, a great warrior. Nineveh was a, a pagan cosmopolitan city. That's what it grew into. And we read of it being the, in present, in present day um, Iraq, we read of it being um, the place of the Medes and the Persians, part of Persia and then became Babylon. And it grew into what became one of the largest cities in the, in the world at that time. Uh, quite, well, relatively small, I imagine, at, at Jonah's time with its 120,000 inhabitants. We get that from later on in the book. And it says about Nineveh, this group of cosmopolitan city of 120,000 people um, with their own king. Uh, it says that their wickedness had uh, come up before God. And you have this sense of um, 
Uh, and there's a scripture that describes God's eyes roaming around the world. And he's actually looking to, um, to show favour and, and support for those who fear him. But he stops in Nineveh and their wickedness comes to his attention. And his heart is stirred to show mercy. And um, he calls on his prophet Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh. And uh, the prophet, as we've said, Jonah's orientation about a call to go and preach a sermon of opportunity to escape God's judgment to his enemy, his people's enemy, it just doesn't sit well with Jonah. Um, and that's really the, the orientation um, that Jonah had when he was told surprisingly to go and and deliver God's message to the people in Nineveh. Now I think there's a really key lesson for us to learn in this. And it, it's the place in the story where we're introduced to God's sovereign purposes. And God's sovereign purposes specifically in relation to showing mercy to people. And Jonah's orientation was... The Ninevites, they're not the kind of people God should be showing mercy to. <laughs> it should be people like me, you know, people from Israel and, the, and his chosen people. And, you know, the, the, the lesson is God's ways are not our ways and God's thoughts are not our, our thoughts. I've noticed in my computer recently, I don't know whether this is me just noticing it for the first time or whether it's a new thing, but you'll get, if you're in Excel or Word or something, you get a little tip comes out and it's a, it's a little hint as to what you might do, a bit of training and, and you have to click on a box that says got it to get rid of it. So you read it I suppose and then you say yeah I've got that. I'd just like to encourage us to dwell on this truth that God's ways are not our ways and God's thoughts are not our ways. Have you got it? Because um, when we get that we'll stop worrying about why things are happening the way we are, the way they are. Because the guarantee is things will happen in a way that wouldn't be our choice. That's just the reality of it. And that's to do with the, the sovereignty of God. Isn't it a shocking thought for me to presume I know the kind of people God would choose to save? And the converse of that, I would um, think I could discern the kind of people God would choose not to save. It's a shocking thing and um, I was thinking about that verse in Acts in the, um, in the remembrance this morning about those who, appointed to it, those who were appointed to eternal life believed. And you know, isn't it a wonderful thought that um, God in his sovereign purposes in eternity past identified those who were appointed to have eternal life. And that, that's nothing to do with me or my choice. I was one of them, amazingly. Um, and that doesn't make me feel proud. It makes me feel humble that um, before anything ever appeared about me, I was part of God's sovereign choice. What a lesson that, that Jonah should have learned, that it, it wasn't for him to challenge God's call it was for him to um, to get on with it but that's the 
that's the element about Nineveh and what that meant to, to Jonah. I'm going to read the verses again and we'll just consider very briefly about his um, reaction. Um, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, um, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come to me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fur, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Please Google um, the story of Jonah slash map. Because the startling thing is where Nineveh is in respect to where uh, Jonah came from in Israel and where Tarshish is. And the, you see a, a map of all of, um, of Europe, Western Europe, all the way to Asia. And it's a, a stepping stone from where Jonah was to Nineveh. And it's a two and a half thousand mile voyage uh, across the Mediterranean, Mediterranean Sea from the most easterly part which is where Joppa was to the most westerly part which is in southern Spain I'm just thinking you know okay Jonah wasn't up for the challenge but why didn't you stay put and say I, I, I'm, I'm just not going to do it and I can just imagine his, his mind ticking over saying well where could I go that will get me out of this job for as long as possible and well if I get myself on a boat for as long as a boat can sail <laughs> then that's a pretty good solution. And it was the furthest he could get from where he was by boat. I don't know how fast they went in those days, but it would put him out of action for weeks and out of contact, so he thought, for weeks. You might think, well, um, there's a bit of a strategy. It's a bit extreme to um, shed this responsibility. Why did he do that? Why, why didn't he just get on with it and, and do what God said? We do get the answer to that in chapter 4. He um, gives it himself. But it, it suffice it to say, in a nutshell, it's me, Jonah, no better than you, God. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that. It's, it's not the right thing to do. Um, back to our question, is there a Jonah in me? The challenge is God has called us to service, just like he called Jonah to service. And Jonah got himself on a voyage in the opposite direction. A voyage which would have been made him hands off. Um, and in a, as we know the story, in a miraculous way, God interrupted that voyage and stopped Jonah in his tracks. And by amazing grace and patience and long suffering, he um, ended up getting Jonah back where he needed to be and in, in service. What a tremendous privilege we have um, to be called with those who have been appointed to eternal life by God's amazing grace and we've got an opportunity to serve. And my challenge to my own heart is where am I in relation to God's calling to serve? Am I on some kind of voyage in the opposite direction because I don't, know, I don't like what it might feel like to do what God's telling me to do? Uh, if I am, then I need to stop in my tracks and, and learn the lesson that I, I'm not going to be able to hide from God. He's got a, a role for me to do. He had a role for Jonah to do in, 
in turning around the people of Nineveh and Jonah was God's choice to do it and um, it was for Jonah to ultimately comply. It's a brilliant story. Um, I just leave those challenges. Is there a Jonah in me as we think about these things and I encourage you if you're listening online to maybe tune in to the next episode um, and of course we'll hear it ourselves in the church next week. Shall we pray?